0: Church, you can go go and grab your Bible and uh, start making your way, if you would, to the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and let's bow together for a word of prayer before we turn to this book. Lord, thank you for your grace toward us. Thank you, Lord, for the promise that as your children, that your strength will always be sufficient for whatever the days are that we face, and Lord, we say that recognizing that We face some difficult days in this life and recognizing that there are folks in our church family even now who are walking through difficult days. So Lord, thank you for the promise that we don't walk alone, that you're with us and that your strength and your grace are sufficient for us. And so Lord, uh, we look to you this morning for help. We look to you this morning for grace. We look to you this morning for cleansing like we sang about in Rock of Ages. Foul we to thy fountain fly. Wash us, Savior, or we die. We're thankful for a Savior who, whose blood was shed so that sinners like us can be forgiven. And, Lord, that's how we come. We come as sinners in need of grace. We don't come, Lord, trumpeting our achievements or trumpeting our gifts. We come, Lord, looking to you as the Savior who forgives. And, Lord, thank you for that. And we pray you would speak to us now through your word. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, church, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And if you have been here, not even for all of it, if you've been here just for at least part of our study in Ecclesiastes, you know that this is not a uh, light, cheery kind of book. Ecclesiastes is one of the heaviest books in the Old Testament, and that's because it was written by a man who had deep regrets about his life. Now Solomon's life started well enough, from what we read in 1 Kings Solomon began his life with a heart that genuinely loved God. He began his life with a heart that genuinely wanted to worship God. But as life progressed, because of temptations and because of distractions, Solomon began to turn away from God. So that eventually God got completely pushed to the edges of Solomon's life and Solomon tried to make it through a huge portion I mean years of his life trying to find something that would satisfy trying to find something that would give him peace other than God and Solomon tried everything under the sun Solomon tried wealth he tried women he tried work he tried wine he tried everything imaginable and none of it worked so Solomon ended that portion of his life Broken and empty. He wasted a big portion of his life. And he's writing Ecclesiastes to urge us not to do the same thing. And so most of this book is just Solomon giving us this oral history of the different roads that he went down. He's describing every dead-end path that he spent his life going down. But as we come to chapter 7, the the writing style changes a little bit. So Ecclesiastes chapter 7 is written more like traditional wisdom literature. In other words, Ecclesiastes 7 is written more like the book of Proverbs. It's just lots of Proverbs laid in line one after the other. Now, what is a proverb? Well, a proverb is a short saying that gives us a general truth about godly living. Proverbs are wisdom statements. And wisdom is about how to live God's way in God's world. And so Proverbs tell us what the path of wisdom looks like. And that's what chapter 7 is filled with. It is one proverb after the next. But here's the question. Why, why does Solomon give us all of these wisdom statements at this point in the book? Well, do you remember what chapter 6 ended with? We took a week off, so you might not remember. But Solomon ended chapter 6 by reminding us that death is looming. He ended chapter 6 by saying that life passes like a shadow. This life is over in the blink of an eye. And so now, in light of that, Solomon's going to say, so if you don't want to waste your life, If you want to make sure you avoid the sort of empty life that Solomon lived, this is what the path of wisdom looks like. So chapter 7 is Solomon laying out for us the path of wisdom so we don't end up going down the path he went down. And he's going to give us the path of wisdom by giving all of these better than statements. So look down just so you see what I mean. Notice how often he uses this phrase. We're in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes again. Look at verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. Verse 2. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter. Verse 5. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise. Verse 8. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. Do you see how he keeps using that same phrase, better than, better than? So it's like Solomon is holding two choices in front of us, and Solomon is saying, this choice is better. So it's like there are two options in life. Every one of us in life are going to come to lots of different crossroads where two choices are laid out. And what Solomon is doing in chapter seven is Solomon is saying, you have two choices, make sure you choose wisely. One choice is better than the other choice. So let's just read the whole chapter, not the whole chapter, the first half of the chapter together anyway. And we'll come back and think about what he's saying. So we're in Ecclesiastes 7. We're going to read verses 1 through verse 14. Solomon writes, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than the day of one's birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason, and a bribe debases the heart. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Consider the work of God. For who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Now there's a lot going on in those 14 verses, but I think we can summarize it under three main headings. Here's the first one. Number one, wise people live beyond the superficial. Wise people live beyond the superficial. Maybe think of it like this. If we're still thinking of the choices we have in life, you can go through life like you're on an airboat where you just sort of skim across the surface of everything, where you never think too deeply about anything, where you never face up to the hard truths of life. You can go through life that way, or you can go through life like a scuba diver where you push down into the things that really matter so Solomon starts it by saying a good name is better than precious ointment what's precious ointment that would be like expensive perfume and you can imagine how costly perfume would be in this day when it's so hard to manufacture and so hard to extract and you can think of why people would value perfume so highly they lived in a hot arid part of the country They're walking on dirt roads, they're walking and working and living among livestock and they don't have bathtubs and shower stalls in their houses. And so while they are regularly washing their hands and washing their feet, they aren't doing a full body bathing like we do every day. They're not doing that very often. And so what could you use perfume for? You could use perfume to mask the odor you can use perfume to hide the smell that's coming from your body so could you put on perfume smell clean and yet still be dirty absolutely you could and so what Solomon is saying here is it's possible to live your life on the precious ointment level it's possible to live your life where all you focus on is the superficial where your whole life is about the nicest truck and the best clothes and the prettiest hair and the best house where you live your life focusing on all of that stuff but Solomon says a good name is better than all of that and your name in the Bible has to do with your character your reputation are you honorable are you trustworthy are you godly do you have self-control do you, do you live the sort of life that genuinely loves God, or are you living your life largely ignoring God? Well, Solomon's saying it's the character level that matters more. Your your character matters more than your clothes. Your reputation matters more than your car. So choose wisely. That's the first point. Now, the first part of verse one was a widely known, widely accepted parable. The same sort of thing shows up in Proverbs but the second part of verse one is a little bit more surprising where Solomon says the day of death and is better is implied here the day of death is better than the day of one's birth now what in the world does Solomon mean by that listen I've been to both ends I've been in maternity wards and and delivery rooms and I've been in hospice houses and hospital rooms and if I got to choose, I would choose the maternity wards every day of the week. Because it's a happy occasion when a baby is born. It is a difficult thing when someone is struggling for their last breath in a hospice room. So what does Solomon mean that the day of death is better than the day of birth? Well, think about it. It's happy when a baby is born. But when you look at that little baby, you have no idea what that baby's going to become, do you? They haven't done anything yet. There's lots of potential. I mean, you might look at that newborn baby and you might have all kinds of hopes and all kinds of dreams about what they're going to become and the life that they're going to live. But that's all it is it's potential, it's hopes, it's dreams. There's nothing they've actually done yet. But at the day of death, all the evidence is in now, right? At the day of death, you're now looking at a life that has been fully lived. The day of death isn't a day of potential. The day of death is about actual. You're getting now to look at someone and measure how did they live their life. Was this a life well lived? Were they kind and courageous? Were they generous and forgiving? Did they love the Lord? Did they live their life for God, investing in people? So sit there at the day of death and listen to what friends and family members have to say. Listen to what is said and listen to what is unsaid. The the day of death, I, I should say it this way, you might be given a name at the day of your birth, but the day of death is when you find out what you did with that name. The day of death is when it's revealed really what you did with your life. And that's why Solomon says the day of death is better than the day of birth. If if today was that day for you think of it this way if today was your day of death if if this was the day when your family and friends were gathered around your hospital bed having conversations about you what would they be saying that's what Solomon is forcing us to think about there and by the way what Solomon says here is doubly true for Christians isn't it when Solomon says the day of death is better than the day of birth That's true in general, but that's doubly true for those who know the Lord. If your trust is in Jesus, the day of death for you is going to be infinitely better than the day of your birth. If your trust is in Jesus, your day of death will be far better than any day you will have ever lived. Because you're connected now through faith to a Savior who has taken the sting out of death. Listen, Hebrews says, and I think it says it accurately, Hebrews 2 says that right now because of sin, all of humanity lives in bondage to the fear of death. We're in a world that is terrified by death. That's why we do do our best most of the time to try to never think about it. Because we recognize that death is this brick brick wall that we're all going to hit one day, and on the other side of death, there's going to be accountability. We're going to stand before God. The writer of Hebrews says, it is a, it's appointed unto man, wants to die. and Then what's the rest of that verse say? It's appointed unto man, wants to die, and after this, the judgment. And the judgment that we deserve from God is to be found guilty. The judgment that we deserve from God rightfully is hell because we've broken God's law, we've sinned against the God who created us, so death should terrify sinners. If you don't know Christ and you're scared of death, you should be scared of death. But in Christ, death is completely transformed. Because through the death and resurrection of Jesus, He took rightfully the judgment that is owed for everyone who trusts in Him. So if you've repented of your sins and turned to Jesus, the fear of death for you has now been lifted. So that for Christians, death isn't just a little bit better, it's far better. Have you ever thought about the way Paul says that in Philippians? Paul actually says, to live is Christ and to die is okay. It's not what he says. He says to live is Christ and to die is gain. So that if if Christ is life for you, If your trust is in Christ, if you have found that He's the one you've made for to follow Him, death will actually be gained for you. So the day of death is better than the day of birth. Look at verse 2. He says, Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. He says something similar in verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. The the house of feasting that he's talking about here is the house that's celebrating. There's a party going on in this house. Maybe maybe it's a wedding reception. Maybe it's a birthday party. maybe, Maybe you and your friends have gotten together to watch the national championship game. That's the house of feasting. And it's good to have times like that. He just told us, Solomon just told us back in chapter 3 that there's a time to dance. There's a time to feast. There's a time to celebrate. But now he says it's better for us to go to the house of mourning. You might say it this way. A good funeral does more good for our souls than a hundred birthday parties you know why that is because you didn't sit at that national championship game watch party and have deep conversations nobody was sitting around watching the national championship game asking the hard questions about life you watch the game you eat wings you enjoy the company but you're not thinking about the condition of your soul but there is something about going to a funeral service there's something about sitting in the house of mourning that smacks you in the face with the harsh realities of life there, there's something about sitting in the house of mourning that cuts through all the superficial stuff and screams out to you and says one day it's gonna be you lying there CS Lewis said it this way I quote this rare uh, frequently at funerals but Lewis said Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's a good quote. God whispers in our pleasures, but it's in those seasons of difficulty and pain that God speaks into our life with a megaphone. That's what Solomon's saying. It's like God has a way of getting our attention when we find ourselves in the house of mourning. And the wise person recognizes that. So the wise person doesn't avoid funerals. In fact, the wise person doesn't just go to funerals. The wise person takes stock of his life when he goes to the house of mourning. The wise person realizes that every casket has an alarm bell. Every single casket we look at is screaming to us, Redeem the time. It's like David in Psalm 90. Do you remember Psalm 90 where David prays and he says, God, help me number my days. That's a good prayer to pray. Lord, help me number my days. Help me remember how fleeting life really is. Well, God uses seasons of mourning. He uses seasons of difficulty to make us face up to that reality. And we need that. So don't don't avoid the hard, uncomfortable parts of life. Listen, there are lots of people who never miss a party, but they avoid the hard things like a plague. Well, go to that funeral. Visit that friend in the hospice house. Sit for a little while with that family. it, it'll encourage them, but what Solomon's saying here is it will also do good for your soul. Listen, if you don't live your life facing up to the reality of death, listen to me now. If you don't live your life regularly facing up to the reality of death, you will live your life like a fool. So there's nothing that Satan wants more than to get you to constantly put death out of mind. Isn't that how it started in the Garden of Eden? Do you remember when Satan comes to Eve and he begins tempting her? There is this one thing that God has said is off limits. One tree, just one they're not allowed to eat from. And Satan comes and begins appealing to Eve. But do you remember what God had said? God had said, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. But what did Satan say to Eve? Oh, you won't surely die. Don't put that out of your mind, Eve. Don't worry about death. And that is the same lie that Satan is constantly whispering in your ear. If Satan can get you to put off thinking about death, he will most certainly get you to waste your life. Blaise Pascal, the 17th century philosopher, Inventor, uh, mathematician, a hundred other things. But Pascal was a Christian, and he described life this way. He said, It's like we are all attending a great big party at a mansion. This is what he says life is like. We're at this big party, and there's all kinds of food, and the band is playing, and there's dancing, and everybody's engaged in a conversation. When all of a sudden, this hideous monster kicks in one of the mansion doors barges into the party, grabs one of the party goers and pounds them to death right in front of everyone and then drags their mangled corpse back out of the party. And he said, everyone stands there for a second just frozen in fear. And then after just a few seconds, awkwardly, the band starts playing again. Everybody tries to turn back to their conversations. They try to ignore what just happened. But the problem is, the same scene keeps playing out every few minutes. Every few minutes, the monster keeps barging in and dragging away somebody else until eventually it becomes clear that sooner or later he's going to drag away everybody at the party. Well, Pascal said that's life. It's like we're at this party and the monster of death keeps dragging away everyone standing around us, but we're doing our best to keep paying attention to the band. We're doing our best to entertain ourselves with stupid conversations about how good the food is and pretend that nothing's happening. But something is happening. Death is coming for you. It's coming for all of us. You can't escape it. But there is a way we can be prepared for it. So you're not doing yourself any favors if you spend your life ignoring that reality. That's what Solomon is saying in verses 2 and 4 is, it does our souls good to spend some time in the house of mourning. So regularly ponder your own mortality. What do you want your life to have looked like when it comes your time to die? Well, live in such a way so that that's where you end up. Think of it like, like looking at Google, Google Maps on your phone. You start that by putting in the destination, right? Because once you put in the destination you're going to, it tells you every turn you need to make to get there. Well, it's like Solomon is saying, go ahead and decide what, what do you want your life to look like when the end comes. Well, I want to have been faithful to the Lord. I want to hear, well done. Well, Solomon is saying, live in such a way now so that that's where you end up. Keep going. Verse 3. We looked at 2 and 4. Go back to 3. He says, sorrow is better than laughter. For by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. Now, Solomon is not saying there's anything wrong with laughter. He's just saying that sorrow has more to teach us than laughter does. Isn't it true? You don't learn much about yourself during those happy seasons. But you go through the difficulties of life and trials have a way of dredging up those deep sins in my heart. Trials have a way of churning up the problems in my life. So if you'll walk in, in uh, wisdom during those seasons, if you'll lean into the Lord and trust the Lord, Solomon's saying that you'll come out the other side more like Christ. Listen to the way Spurgeon, this is Spurgeon's own words, which you could say is a summary of what Solomon says here in verse 3. Charles Spurgeon said, I'm afraid that all the grace that I've got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I've received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It's the best book on a minister's library. That's what Solomon means when he says sorrow is better than laughter. Verses 5 and 6. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. You can imagine this scene. I've been in these scenes myself. Imagine a group of guys sitting around just cackling in laughter, telling silly jokes and singing songs at the top of their lungs and cackling all the while. Well, Solomon says it's like the crackling of thorns. Imagine you throw a bunch of thorns on a fire. They make a lot of noise. They hiss and they crackle, but they burn so fast that they don't warm up enough to heat up your food. If you want to do that, you need something that burns hotter. You need to to throw a big log on the fire. Well, it, it might not make, that big log might not make nearly as much noise, but it burns hotter and it burns longer Well, Solomon is saying, here's another mark on the path of wisdom. You and I have a choice about the kinds of people we will surround ourselves with. You can have a bunch of foolish friends who have never had a deep thought in their lives. It's all lighthearted and cackling and superficial. There's a lot of noise, but they're not actually helping you develop a good name. There's a lot of noise, but they're not actually helping you prepare for the day of your death. But Solomon says if you have a choice between surrounding yourself with a hundred friends like that or just having one wise friend who speaks a word of correction in your life, choose the one wise friend. Think about that. If you have the choice between a hundred foolish friends who... Cackle like crackling thorns or just one wise friend who is willing to correct you, choose the wise friend. Because one word of correction, if received well, can completely change the course of your life. Isn't that what happened with David? you remember when David, David was spinning out of control in his life? David was breaking the Ten Commandments left and right. David was committing adultery. David was committing murder. And what was it that finally turned David around? One man named Nathan corrected David and he responded well, and it turned around the whole course of David's life. Do you have those kinds of friends? Do you have friends who see life accurately? Do you have friends who recognize what the real weighty issues of life are? Or or are your friends only interested in the superficial? They're great when it comes to times of laughter. They know how to be the life of the party. But they never help you think about the deeper realities of life. If that's the sort of people you surround yourself with, you are dooming yourself to a lifetime of perpetual immaturity. Do do you have a friend who knows and loves the Lord and loves you and who is invited to speak into your life? Who has the freedom to correct you? If you don't, if all you have are superficial friends and you bristle any time someone dares give you correction, you are dooming your own soul. So let me sum up these first six verses. Do you get the common theme that holds all of this together? The common theme is what's best for us isn't always what feels best to us. God tends to use the hard things. The hard word of correction from a friend. Those difficult moments in the house of mourning. It's often the hard days, the hard things that God, use, that God will use to bring about the most profound change in your life. So wise people, see past the superficial. Here's the second one. Number two, wise people keep a close watch on their own hearts. Wise people keep a close watch on their own hearts. Look at verse 7. Solomon continues surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart solomon's talking still about difficulties and his point here is that here's what tends to happen life can be so hard that even a wise man is tempted in difficulty to step off the path of wisdom so think of the situation he's describing imagine living in solomon's day and you're having to go to court over some issue and you know you're in the right on this issue but the other guy gives a bribe to the judge and even though you're in the right you end up losing the court case and what Solomon is saying is when you go through the difficult seasons of life like that If your method of going through life is you just sort of put it in cruise control and you let your circumstances determine your behavior, you will most certainly live like a fool. Because there are lots of seasons in life where you'll be tempted to respond foolishly. Look at verses 8 and 9. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. What's what's Solomon telling us here? I think the main point is to live patiently. Solomon says the end is better than the beginning. We might say it's not how you start, it's how you finish. I don't know if you've ever been to a, a race before, a 5K, a 10K, a marathon, anything like that you don't learn a whole lot at a race by standing at the starting line everybody looks great when the race starts everybody's smiling and their running form looks terrific and everybody's breathing well you learn a lot more at a race by standing at the finish line it's one thing to stand at the altar on your wedding day and exchange vows it's one thing to stand there on your wedding day and to profess How special your love is and to declare how long you're gonna love each other and weddings are fantastic but I'm not impressed by weddings I'm much more impressed to see you at your 40th anniversary still loving each other ma'am it's great that it's great that you fed him cake at the reception I am far more impressed Forty years later, when you're having to feed him lunch in a hospital bed because he doesn't have the strength to raise his own fork. Yes, sir, it's great that you can carry her across the threshold for your honeymoon. It is far more impressive when, when you can carry her to the bathroom after her third round of chemotherapy. The end is better than the beginning. And the wise person knows that. So Solomon is saying the wise person measures things with that in view. And the only way you'll be able to live with the long view is if you live with patience. In other words, you, you have to endure. Pride can start well, but it takes patience to finish well. So you and I have to be willing and able to keep our emotions in check. He says, if you're hasty, if you you hold on to anger, you'll live like a fool. In other words, I guess I'll just sum it up this way. An inability to control your emotions is one of the telltale signs of a fool. That's why he warns against hastiness and warns against anger. And What Solomon is saying is, if I don't have the ability to hold my emotions in check, if I don't develop self-control, I'll live life foolishly. Don't you experience this? So a fool has hair-trigger emotions. They'll jump into something early with lots of gusto, but they burn out just as quickly. A fool flies off the handle and destroys a relationship that it took years to build. So the wise person learns self-control. The wise person repents of anger and prays for patience and perseverance and then he warns about another emotion in verse 10 look at verse 10 do not say why were the former days better than these for you do not inquire wisely concerning this what Solomon warning us about there he's warning us about the kind of nostalgia that constantly pines for the good old days Now listen we're thankful for the past we want to learn from the past but we can't live in the past. Yesterday's gone. You'll never live in yesterday again. It's it's over and you can't live your life like a wise person if you spend your life looking over your shoulder longing for what's already past. Listen, the God who was sovereign over the good old days is the same God who is sovereign today. He has you today for a reason. His grace is sufficient for you today. So don't live your life pining for the past. That's the behavior Solomon is saying of a fool. Verses 11 and 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life To those who have it. These verses are just about the value of wisdom. And Solomon is saying, hey, if you get an inheritance, you better have wisdom with it. Because if you get an inheritance without wisdom, you'll either waste the inheritance or that inheritance will ruin your soul. Maybe both. And then he says, notice that one phrase. He says, wisdom is a defense as money. And what he means there is, it's like wisdom and money both provide a certain protection in life. So if you have an unexpected hospital stay, or if your car breaks down and you, weren't, you had no idea it was coming, well, if you have a little nest egg, money can keep you from financial ruin when that kind of stuff happens. It provides a layer of protection. And Solomon is saying that's what wisdom does. When you go through the kind of difficulties he's describing here, wisdom is what will help you navigate through it. Wisdom is what will get you through those choppy waters without shipwrecking yourself. So wisdom is like money in that it provides a certain level of protection. But, Solomon says, wisdom is better because it gives life to those who have it. In other words, wisdom can do what money can't do. Wisdom can show you the path of real life. And then here's the final point. Number three, wise people rest in God's sovereignty over all of life. And this one's crucial. Don't tune out now. This one's crucial because it's essential to understand everything he has said up to this point. In other words, if you miss verses 13 and 14, verses 1 through 12 won't make much sense. So what does he say? Look at verse 13. Let's start with that one. Consider the work of God. Now Paul's. What does the word consider mean? What is Solomon telling us to do there? Consider means stop and think. So there's something here that Solomon wants us to think deeply about. Think deeply about the work of God. What work of God does he have in mind? Here's the work. Look at verse 13. Here's what he wants us to consider. For who can make straight what he has made crooked? What's he talking about? What what is he talking about that God has made crooked? well the crooked parts of life are the difficulties in life right think of it like this so here's here's how I envision my life going everybody in here has this is how I think my life is gonna play out this is the line that I want my life to follow but what often happens in life that line tends to bend away doesn't it does life always follow your plan does your health and your job and your kids and your family does it follow the plan that you had set out? It doesn't. It bends away from that. And Solomon is saying, it doesn't matter how bad I wish it wouldn't happen. It doesn't matter how, how hard I try. I can use all my street to try to do it, but I can't straighten out the crooked parts of life. God doesn't give me a red pen and let me alter His script for me. We can't change the crooked parts. I, I, can't, I can't undo a bad doctor's report. I, I, can't, I can't make a rebellious child not rebel. I can't, um, I can't raise the dead. I can't, we can't do any of those things. So this is a verse about God's sovereignty over our trials. Now, every Christian would agree that God is sovereign. You have to, because we recognize that for God to be God, he has to be in control. But this is where the rubber meets the road. If your God is only sovereign of the good times, you don't have much of a God. But Solomon is reminding us here that the God of the Bible is both sovereign over the crooked parts of life and he walks with us in the crooked parts of life. Look at how he adds to this in verse 14. In the day of prosperity be joyful but in the day of, of adversity consider surely God has appointed the one as well as the other so that man can find out nothing that will come after him No no see Solomon makes the point we have days of prosperity there are there are lots of very good days in life we recognize the good days as coming from the hand of God we enjoy those days we thank God for those days but Solomon is saying there are also plenty of days of adversity in life, and he makes the point that God has appointed the one as well as the other. In other words, God is as much in control of the hard days as He is the good days. Now, why is that? Why would God ordain crooked parts? Why would God ordain hard days? We I mean, think of it in the life of Job. Why would God allow? For Job's health to be torn apart? Why would God allow for Job's family to be taken away? Well, we know from that story that God allowed that in Job's life because it proved the genuineness of his faith and it showed the value of God. Because do you remember, what what was Satan's accusation about Job? Satan said, God... The only reason Job serves you is because of what he gets out of it. In other words, he doesn't love you, he just loves the stuff you give him. And so God allowed Satan to take all the stuff away. And what did Job do? He continued to worship God. And in doing that, Job showed that God is greater than all the stuff, all the blessings he had gotten. So, so Job went through adversity, and in it, God's greatness was shown, and the genuineness of Job's faith was shown. And God also uses the crooked parts to leave us longing for the life to come. Isn't that true? There's something about going through the difficulties of life that have a way of reminding me that this world is not my home. I, I'm just a pilgrim passing through. There's a better world still to come. There's a better life awaiting for me. And there's nothing like hardship to remind me that this is not my home. So make sure you get what these last two verses are saying. The point here isn't just that life is hard. The point is that even the hardship of life is governed by God. And God has a purpose in it. Let me just give you one other example from Scripture. Think of the life of Joseph. Isn't Joseph's life a great picture of this? What all did Joseph experience in his life? His his own brothers hated him. How much did they hate him? So much, they sold him into slavery and convinced their dad he was dead. I think you could call that a crooked part of life. But, But Joseph continued to honor God even in that until this sleazy woman lied on him and ended up, getting Joseph thrown in prison that's another crooked part well Joseph continued to honor the Lord in prison and then he gets forgotten about and left in prison for years that's another crooked part. Joseph's life didn't just have one or two it was like a corkscrew of crookedness his life was one hard thing after the next after the next after the next but do you remember toward the end of Joseph's life when he was reunited with his brothers you remember that conversation Where Joseph's brothers, excuse me, Joseph said to his brothers, What you intended for evil, the Lord intended for good. In other words, there were people in Joseph's life who they wanted him to suffer, and they hoped that it all would ruin Joseph. Yet, Joseph says, God was at work in the same events. God was ultimately sovereign over all of the crooked parts. And God had used it all for Joseph's ultimate good. And Christian, we have to trust that. God's in control of every crooked part. There's a a book that was written by a Puritan pastor years ago, Thomas Boston, called The Crook in the Lot. It's based on this, and it's about all the crooked parts in life and how as Christians we're called to respond to the crooked times. And ultimately the message is, We have to trust God even when we don't understand it. Listen, one last thing and I promise I'm closing. We can do that. We can trust God because we know that the same God who reigns over us also sent His Son to die for us. You see why that's significant. If the only attribute of God that we knew about was sovereignty, it wouldn't be very comforting. But it's not, because we're also told that God has demonstrated His love for us and that while we were sinners, He sent His Son to die for us. That the God who reigns over and appoints the crooked parts of life is the same God who made the ultimate sacrifice to rescue us from our sins and to make us His own so we can and should trust Him. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. Just because things feel good don't mean they're necessarily for our good. Sometimes the best things for us are the hard parts for us. So we have to trust God. I'll I'll end with the words of the hymn where William Cooper said, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. It's a great line. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Behind a frowning providence, there hides a smiling face. Trust God. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. And I'll give you a few minutes to go to the Lord yourself in your seat. And to apply Ecclesiastes 7 in your own heart before the Lord in prayer. Ask God to help you live your life. It is so easy to go through life living purely for the superficial. Repent of that where you see it. Ask God to help you not live for the precious ointment. Ask God for the sorts of friends who aren't like crackling thorn branches but ask God for the kind of wise friends who speak and who you receive a word of correction. Ask God to help you think deeply during the times of difficulty and to ponder when you find yourself in the house of mourning and trust that the God who appoints the good days also appoints the crooked parts so trust Him. So I'll give you a few minutes to pray and then I'll come close us.